Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September the 16th, 2021. This is episode 2957 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Thursday, it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show. Here's what we've got for you today. Dealing with congenital heart failure with Dr. Ken Berry and how the proper human diet can affect that. It can't fix it. It can't reverse it, but it can help to be eating right when you're dealing with something as serious as congenital heart failure. Derek Bonpietro will talk about the rise of electric vehicles, how that will affect gas prices, making decisions about engine swaps based on that, all kinds of cool stuff. And then Tim, the toolman cook, he's got another grab bag, a whole bunch of stuff. Dealing with concrete nails is in nails in the concrete, and you don't want them there. How to get them out and how to fix the damage that will undoubtedly occur when you pull them out. Um, Corey and countertops, sheet vinyl, and more, all from Tim Toolman Cook today. Amy Dingman from A Farmish Kind of Life is going to talk to us about how to evaluate a homeschool curriculum. I'll have a little addition on that one. Paul Wheaton has a, uh, a question on detecting rot in beams, supports, things, things like that in structures where they already exist, and the beam looks okay. From the outside, but inside, something a rot is afoot. How do we know that, and what do we do about it? Nick Ferguson will talk about when and how to begin harvesting fodder trees. That's something he's been doing a lot of work with lately, and he's got a lot of guys and gals out there with homesteads on board with it. I think it's one of the best things you can do for your homestead long-term if you're going to have livestock. And so he's got some great stuff on that. And how to figure out when and how to harvest is going to be something that everybody's going to have to Kind of, sort of, there are guidelines, and you got to kind of sort of figure it out for yourself. Nick will try to help you with that. And then I'm going to talk to you guys about a quote of the day today from one of my favorite authors. I've mentioned this guy a bunch of times over the years. His name's Richard Bach. He's got a lot of really great books. There's some, like, one and nothing by chance and stuff. But the two books that have had the biggest influence on my life that this guy's written, and, and, and they would be in the top ten books influencing my life, one is called Jonathan Livingston Siegel, and the other one is called Illusions. And um, this quote is so poignant and so true. And it kind of, it's everything Bach writes is really soft in, in feel, like in tone and in prose. But this kind of hits you like a two by four when you take it and you realize like it's a statement and then a question. And the statement is true of every human being at every point in their life up to that point. The quote is, I gave my life to become the person I am right now. Let's say that part again. I gave my life to become the person I am right now. And then the next part is the question. Very simple question, four words. Was it worth it? I gave my life to become the person I am right now. Was it worth it? I'll have commentary on that when we get to the end. Uh, for the anchor segment, but we'll start out with that and get the mind working as we go through all of this wisdom we're going to learn today from the expert council members. Before that, though, I just want to remind you, TSP 21 Fall Workshop, coming up in November. The official dates are the 10th to the 14th. The workshop is really the 11th through the 13th. 11, 12, and 13 are when we have the classes and all the organization and 
everything kind of going on. The 10th is Wednesday, and that's when most people show up, especially if you're camping or whatever. That way you can get your camp set up and what have you. And then Thursday is when we start doing the classes. So you can show up Thursday if, you, if you're coming. Plenty of people do. If you're here and you're not camping, but you're in town, Wednesday, come. Come hang out. We drink beers. We cook bratwurst. We start getting to know each other, etc. Uh, then we do our classes for three days, and then Sunday, the 14th, it's on, you know, it's on the paperwork, so to say, but really that's go home day, right? So, you know, grab a cup of coffee, say goodbye to people, and get off my property by 10.30 so I can put my life back together and take a nap. <laughs> that's kind of how we run things. And, um, man, if you want to be at this one, you're going to need to get on the Telegram channel or group. If you don't do it, you're not going to get a ticket. I'm telling you right now, when I, when I drop that link and it's gonna, it's gonna, they're gonna go on sale 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. That's when the tickets are gonna go on sale. 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, Saturday the 25th. That's next Saturday. And I know, because I've done this for years, I'm gonna drop that link, I'm gonna hit send, and I'm, my phone that has my alerts when the forms get filled out, it's gonna go ding, da ding, 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 and 65 seats will sell out in well under 10 minutes. And if you're not on that alert list, you're not gonna get one. So, I don't, I don't promote this heavily as we lead up to going on sale every year, because I'm worried about selling out. I'm going to sell out. I could do nothing. I could put a, I could, I could literally drop that link in Telegram and say, I've just decided today to sell tickets. It'll sell out in an hour with no promotion. I do it so that people that want to come get a shot at coming. Cause every year I have people that I'm like, damn, I can't believe he's not coming. Cause they'll miss it, you know, they, and not because they weren't there because they just, they just, it's like a lottery basically at this point. And they just didn't get theirs filled out quick enough. And I feel bad. And anybody that wants to come, I want you to have a shot. And I want you to realize if you come to this, It is a life-changing experience. The biggest kind of selling point, I guess would be the word for this, is that more than 60% of our students pretty much year after year after year have been before. So if, if people come back, you know, I've been doing these eight years now, and in some years we've done three, four in a year, and there's people that have literally been to a dozen of them. And that tells you something. Now, I am raising the price this year, 50 bucks a student, Um, I'm doing that because I have to economically. My costs have gone up over eight years by about $100 a student to run the workshop. And I'm splitting the difference. I've done everything I can for eight years to keep the cost level. And anybody that's been here, you know, get on the group, the Telegram group, and ask, like, do you get your money's worth at a workshop at Jack's? And no one's going to, I mean, I've never had anybody tell me, like, I want my money back or anything, you know. And I'd give it, I'd do it. There's no doubt about it. I would refund anybody that wanted to be refunded. Um, the Most times in the workshop, you worry about, well, what are you going to learn? The learn is the icing on the cake here. It's a lot of education. I went through it all yesterday. You can look at the, the, the announcement on the website if you want to. Um, but the learn is the icing. The cake is the people. The cake is the people. The, the people that you, you meet, the relationships that become long-term relationships... When I have people say things to me like, well, the reason I make sure I come every year is just when I see all my friends. That makes me feel like I know that I'm doing this right. I'll say one more thing, too. If if I made a deal with you to guarantee you a C or something specific from a barter blanket or some sort of a deal, 
You need to let me know about it and remind me about it. TSPC in the subject line, email me about it and remind me what it is. I need to get that buttoned up with you before it goes on sale so I know what it does to my, my inventory. My limit on seats is not a marketing tactic. It is a logistical limitation. I don't have the room to park more people. And there's a kind of a head count that we can really take care of. And if we go over that, we're not really going to be able to take care of everybody. And people are not going to enjoy it as much. There is a physical limitation on what we can actually take. So if, if I've made a deal with you, I'll honor it. But I need to know soon, very soon, because next Saturday, sale. Tickets get taken. It's done. Okay. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get on into it, starting out with Dr. Ken Berry on dealing with congenital heart failure. And for those that love Dr. Ken, he's going to be here for the fall workshop. Ken, uh, what can you tell us about this? Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Matt. The question is, can the proper human diet reverse the effects of congenital heart failure? My mother-in-law is experiencing shortness of breath, swelling of the ankles and abdomen, and inflammation of the heart. She eats a traditional carbohydrate-rich American diet. Her doctors will load her up for pit with pills for sure. Any chance getting off carbs will help? <coughs> Thanks for the question, Matt. The answer is yes, a proper human diet will help. It's obviously not going to reverse the congenital defect, but... Having chronically high blood sugar, chronically high insulin, and chronically high levels of inflammation is going to make the congenital defect more symptomatic. She's going to have more inflammation. She's going to have more edema or swelling. She's going to have more signs and symptoms of the congenital heart defect when she's eating a high-carbohydrate inflammatory diet. Uh, she may still need uh, a pill or two or even a surgical procedure for the congenital heart defect part of this, but she absolutely will benefit from eating a proper human diet for the reasons that I, I listed. Thanks so much. This is Dr. Berry. You know, I'm not really adding to it, but just something to think about with what Ken just told you. It won't reverse it and it won't fix it. And there's a reason. Damage to the heart, whether it's congenital, physical, due to something, when actually you've damaged the heart muscle itself, you've damaged the heart valves, etc., any damage to the heart is irreversible. It won't heal. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that, but one of the reasons you can think of with the muscle damage itself, if you damage your bicep, what do you do? What do you do? You rest your bicep so that it can heal. And if it's damaged and you never rest it, if, if your, your bicep's damaged and you force yourself to do curls, it's going to be very hard for that muscle to heal, right? And if it heals, it's not going to heal well. So we immobilize, we rest when we damage muscle. Can't do that with your heart, can you? So why am I bringing this up? Because the number one side effect of this freaking COVID shot especially in young males, so you're talking like 15 to 25, that age group, is, is um, myocarditis, which is swelling of the heart, and then the heart eventually, fortunately, goes back to normal size. But this damages the heart, and you're taking a 15 to 25-year-old perfectly healthy young male, and you're giving them a lifelong bit of heart damage to protect them from a virus that they literally have far more chance of surviving 
than they do of getting the heart damage from the shot by the numbers. Just saying. So not really related to Ken's question other than if you wonder why it won't fix it, right? Congenital means you're born with it, but why can't it repair itself? Why can't it fix itself? Because the heart doesn't work that way. The heart doesn't work that way. And the other thing that they have as a side effect from some of this is swelling of the brain. Brain cannot heal itself either. When brain is damaged, the damage is permanent. And you might wonder, like, when, when somebody has, um, like, a brain surgery and they wake up and they, they can't function well, but over time they get their function back, that's not the brain healing. That's, that's, the, that's the, the body and the brain rewiring and rerouting how the signals run and adapting. The damage doesn't come back. If I take a piece of your brain out, it will never... It's your liver, you can take a piece of a liver out and it will grow back. That's why you can take half a liver out of one patient, give it to another, and they both can live. And the original donor will actually grow their liver back. That's not how the heart nor the brain works. Just something to be aware of. Next up, um, we've got a question, interesting one. Derek Bonpietro, a guy considering doing an engine swap in a Camaro... And, and wants to know how uh, the rise of electric vehicles are going to affect gas prices and how that might impact his decision. Uh, with that, Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the Affordable DC Power Supply Solution. I got a question from Justin in Florida about cars and EV swaps and kind of cool stuff, so let's dig into it. My question is, will the price of gasoline increase or decrease as more and more EVs come onto the market? Details. I have a 68 Camaro that I'd like to put an LT4 swap into. I know that will take me several years to complete the suspension work and the engine swap work in my spare time. Since EVs are becoming more and more popular and manufacturers are switching over, is it worth spending up to $20,000 on what almost seems like an outdated technology? Or would it be better to consider a Tesla swap? What will the price of gasoline do as EVs become more popular? As demand decreases, it seems that the price of gasoline would decrease but I think this could be offset by reductions in production. What are your thoughts on an LT swap versus an EV conversion? All right, Justin, pretty complex question. Now, we've got a couple things playing here, and that you're asking me what's the price of gasoline going to do, and I could tell you with 100% certainty I don't know because try to apply the traditional pricing and demand curves and where you have the demand go down, the price is going to go down. At some point, those intersect, and we create the the actual price of the product, but like, I, 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 I'm not an expert in the oil market, and you've got these organizations like OPEC, which control the oil on the market, and it's just such an unstable thing in the world that I don't know, because as demand goes down, like you said, is the production going to go down, and then that's going to artificially drive the price up, so it's kind of being manipulated by third parties, and it's just something that's going to be impossible to predict, but you would think that as more EVs come out of the market, the commodities go towards copper instead of oil, and eventually we're going to be driving around hot rods and toys and stuff that use gasoline where the average Joe driving to work using a vehicle is all going to be electric. You'd think that the price would go down, but that's a variable I can't answer. Now, let's talk about powering the 68 Camaro, and there's also some factors just in this particular vehicle. So when we talk about doing an electric swap on a vehicle... You know, there, there's there's certain vehicles that maybe people like more to do. Like, for example, you had a Volkswagen bus, and the thing was slow to begin with, and it made, like, you know, a whopping 50 horsepower. So that's, like, a good candidate to do an EV swap because nobody really cares because that thing was so slow to begin with. But we're talking about a performance car, and when people think Camaro, especially 68 Camaro, they want that 
raw fuel smell out the exhaust, that, that idle, that, I think that has a nice lobe to it. And it's really just about the feel. And that's kind of what sets the demand and the price for a muscle car of that era. And I'd say that the most valuable Camaro in that era is probably an all original one, even though it might not be in the perfect showroom condition. It has a numbers matching engine and it has maybe original paint or original interior. And that's, that's the highest value. And like, you don't want to destroy something like that by doing an EV swap because you could buy maybe a junk 60s Camaro and fix it up and do the swap and, and save that as an original piece because they just don't exist anymore. So being that it's an old muscle car, I think that's kind of a special use case where you don't want to destroy something because it's kind of a piece of history. Now, if your Camaro's been, you know, rebuilt a billion times and it's had four or five engines in it, like maybe the originality of the vehicle isn't so important. And when you're talking an LT4 swap, it's kind of doing like a retro uh, rod or whatever they call it, where you're taking an older vehicle, like a muscle car, you're putting a modern engine, transmission, brakes, suspension. So it's like a brand new vehicle, except it's old. And to me, that's, that's cool because it's useful and it's, it's fairly valuable because you have something that's obviously a short supply of because they're so old, but now you've got something usable as well. So I've got an 84 Suburban. It's got a modern big block in it. I can take it down the highway at 80 miles an hour, blip the key. It fires right up. Cold air conditioning. It drives awesome. It's comfortable, but it's old and it's a classic. So I like the retro stuff with modern technology. That's my personal opinion. So personally, if your Camaro isn't like all original and one of those survivor cars, I'd probably go with the LT4 just because it, it kind of follows suit with what the car is. It's got a V8. It's got the sound. It's got that feel when you drive it, especially if like you got a manual transmission behind it. it it's just, it's retaining the originality of the car, but just modernizing it enough where it's easier to drive and more reliable, but still original. Now, when you're talking an EV swap or a Tesla swap, for those that aren't familiar with that stuff, you're basically taking like the battery cells or the electric drive motor out of a Tesla and you're putting it into something else. And depending on the vehicle, there's stuff coming out of the market, you know, brackets and adapter plates and things like that, that allow electric conversions for certain types of vehicles a lot easier because the hard R&D of making that work in this particular frame and body or whatever, it's becoming more and more popular, especially now Tesla's been out for a while. Stuff like that's in a junkyard, so they're more available. So the Tesla is kind of the go-to for that. If you're interested in a Tesla swap, look at a company like EV West. They do a lot of Tesla swap stuff in older vehicles, even I think some Porsches and older Volkswagens. Like they kind of set the standard for that stuff. But I think if you're doing that, we're like easily doubling to tripling your budget of $20,000 for that, that modern V8 because we got batteries, we got an electric motor. That stuff's really expensive. We're essentially repowering the entire vehicle. So air conditioning, heat, that doesn't work like it did with a gas V8. So you have hot coolant coming out of that V8. doesn't matter how old or new it is. We have hot coolant. And that flows into our heater core that gives us heat. We got air conditioning. We got a compressor that's mounted on the engine, just like it's been for the last hundred years. And we've got an evaporator under the dash and refrigerant cycles between them and gives you cold air. Doesn't matter how old the vehicle, you can put air conditioning on a Model A if you put a bracket on it to drive the compressor. I mean, like it's all standard stuff for the last hundred years. Doesn't matter. But when we're talking an EV, now we're using a high-voltage DC compressor. And again, very expensive. How do we heat the vehicle? Well, we're using resistive-style heat to heat the seats, to heat the air. 
so what I'm getting at is basically we're, we're trying to modernize the car to the point where we're basically re-engineering the entire thing. I think personally, if you're going to do that, just, just go out and buy a Tesla. You're already ahead of the curve because it comes together and you just you make your monthly payment on it. So I think you're going to maybe possibly destroy what that Camaro is to begin with. And the other side of the coin is that you're going to spend more money than it would cost just to buy a Tesla brand new to try to make something else an EV car. Now, if you were going to do like a do-it-yourselfer job and you really wanted to do an EV conversion, and honestly, I think maybe in the next five to ten years when prices get even lower, I, I think I want to do something like that. I don't know what kind of vehicle, but like there are cars that lend themselves. We talked about the adapter kits to make electric drive in certain types of chassis. Stick with something like that. Now, I'm not saying back in my day people were taking like Ford Rangers and S10s and they put the whole bed full of golf cart batteries, you know, lead-acid stuff, and the thing weighs 8,000 pounds, and it couldn't do above 30 miles an hour, and you couldn't get to the end of your street without discharging it and having to push it back. You know, that, that, that day is long gone. We've got lithium batteries. We've got really high-horsepower electric motors. It's a doable swap. Actually, Chevrolet, I think I saw a news article that they were offering an EV kit. So basically a battery pack out of one of their electric cars and the drive motor, but it was going to adapt to... A transfer case and so there was a Chevy Blazer they redid so like this stuff's up and coming this is the new type of hot rodding but don't destroy your old classic pick the right kind of car if you're into that thing and definitely set a way bigger budget than $20,000 if that's what you want to do just want to be upfront with you I think we're just very premature with that kind of stuff at this point all right Justin I hope that answered your question good luck with the project I don't think there's anything more satisfying building wise than completely gutting a car and building it from an old shell into something that's that's brand new again. I think it's very satisfying. So I'm happy that you got a project, and I hope you go down the right path, and you're happy with the end result. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. Next up, we got a grab bag uh, for Tim Cook. We've got concrete nails, corny and, ca corny and countertops, uh, sheet vinyl flooring, and more from Tim Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to attempt to answer a couple of more questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in. The first question is, says, I have a question for Tim the Toolman for an upcoming expert council show. How do you remove nails from concrete? Details. I had a wall in my basement and I demolished it recently. After removing the studs, there were 2x4s nailed to the concrete foundation of my house. I managed to remove the 2x4s, but the nails are still in the concrete. I have tried multiple ways to remove them with no success. I've even had some concrete chip away around the nails. Also, what would you recommend using to fill in the hole afterwards? Thanks, James. So, James, you know, the smart aleck in me would just say, <laughs> I'd probably just use an angle grinder, cut them off flush, and be done with it. But that's just me, and I'm sure that's not what you're looking for. But that is a solution if you're thinking about it. So, and I guess you've probably tried most of the normal techniques, you know. But if, if you are going to use a pry bar or a hammer... Uh, one thing that can help with these, these old concrete nails can be really tough, but try hitting them on the right side, then on the left side, then on the right side, back and forth, and then, you know, alternate around the nail a few times. Try to get it to loosen up because they hold really tight, but if you can put a little bit of sideways pressure on them with a hammer, you know, hit it as close to the concrete as you can and don't hit one side more than once so that you're, you know, um, making it weak and it's going to break off, but try working your way around the nail a few times 
And sometimes that's enough to loosen it up and then put a chunk of two by four or one by four against the concrete, then put your hammer on there and pull against that. Sometimes that helps. Now, if that doesn't work, the only other option, honestly, is either a hand masonry chisel or a, you know, a small electric, uh, SDS type chisel. So if you're looking for something like that, again, what you're going to need to do is chisel down around all those nails and then you're going to have to go back in and fill it. So once you've got them out, and if you chisel them out, they're going to fall out at that point. But I really like the DAP. I find DAP products, for the cost of them, they're pretty inexpensive and their quality is really good. Just look for any one of the DAP concrete sealers. I'll throw a link uh, to Jack so that he can put it in there for you for Amazon. But they just come in a caulking tube. And for the size of a hole you're going to be left with, with the nails when you pull them into the concrete, that DAP concrete sealer will work great. So I hope that helps. It's really hard to explain the process through a, you know, a segment on here, but hopefully that will work for you, James. So hang in there and all the best. Okay, the next question comes from G Hearts over on Float, and they wanted to know what the best way was to cut Corian countertop. They replaced a slide-in stove and need to trim three quarters of an inch off the back of the opening so that one, the new one fits in properly. And again, if you guys haven't heard of Corian, it's the type of countertop that you'll see in a lot of fast food restaurants, higher end restaurants, real heavy duty stuff that doesn't scratch really easy. It might seem intimidating, but it's really not that bad. So all you need, there's really three things that I find that'll set you up for success if you're trying to cut something like just regular countertop, but Corian in particular. What you need is a fine finished blade with a lot of carbite teeth, like 80 or more. Uh, The more teeth, the smoother the cut you're going to have. Number two, you need to clamp on a straight edge. So whether that's a a level or a piece of board, make sure you have it clamped on and you've allowed the extra little gap uh, for the thickness of the the kick plate or the plate on your saw so that you're going to cut right through where you need to. And then number three, lay down painter's tape, put your line on the middle of that painter's tape and cut through that. You know, the process for getting a good, straight, uh, non-blown out edge from a cut is the same with plywood, uh, melamine, any of that. But Corian just seems extra intimidating because it's really expensive. But but that's all it takes. A fine finished blade with more teeth. The more teeth, the better. A good straight edge clamped on the material and then painter's tape and cut straight through it. So I hope that helps and I'd love to hear back from you on your success with it. Okay, and the third question comes from Jeremiah over on Facebook, and he says, Hey, Tim, I wanted your input. I'm wondering if I can tackle a DIY sheet vinyl linoleum install. Have you ever done it? I've done vinyl plank, but not sheet vinyl. It looks simple enough, but I have a lot of half walls, appliance bays, and a bathroom to do. Jeremiah, again, vinyl flooring is something that can seem intimidating if you've never done it before. I hadn't done it before. So a guy that I did a lot of maintenance work for, he had done some. So I volunteered to help him one weekend to learn. And you know what? It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. It seems intimidating, scary, but it really isn't. If you can, start in a square room or or a rectangle room, something with just some nice, clean 90-degree angles. That's where you start. And buy your linoleum just, you know, a couple of feet bigger in each direction and then cut it so that it's about six inches bigger than you need. Then unroll it in the room. That's the big part. And then the tedious part is trimming it back. So take your time and make sure you've got it nice and flat in the room and go around with a nice sharp blade like a carbide uh, knife blade and just trim it so that you're just below the existing baseboard or the wall edges. Just take your time and take small cuts because you can always take more off, but you can't 
add some back when you cut it off. That's the only hard part about it. Then once you've got it all done and you make sure that the floor underneath was nice and clean and dry and no debris on it, roll the flooring back, you know, half to three quarters of the way, get a good adhesive, get a good trowel and just trowel it on. Then, you know, leave it exposed to the air for a few minutes, roll it back down, flatten it out, repeat the process on the other side and then put your baseboard on. That's it. I, I, I wanted to blow through this. I hope that helps. It's not nearly as intimidating as you think it might be. I've got a good video over on my channel. I'll send the link to Jack. And if you want more follow-up on this, feel free to email me or holler at me, and I will definitely give you some more tips. So I hope that helps, guys. I hope this we, we knocked through three questions this week. And again, if you want to know more about me, drop by the YouTube channel or toolmantim.co and check out my five videos a week and drop by for the live stream every Sunday night at 8 o'clock Mountain Time. So thanks, guys. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. He sure gets a lot in in the, uh, the 7 to 10 minutes that I give as an allotment, doesn't he? Anyway, next up, Amy Dingman from A Farmer's Kind of Life on Evaluating a Homeschool Curriculum. Hello, TSPers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmer's Kind of Life podcast and website, and I am back to answer another question about homeschooling. This question comes from Luke, and Luke asked, How does a person looking into homeschooling evaluate a program or a curriculum? He goes on to say, I have a two-year-old with another one on the way. We live in a small rural community that has okay schools, but the big city politics and policies are filtering in. I'm trying to be proactive when it comes to the option for our children's education. What are some resources to see various curriculums, and what are some things to look for when evaluating those options? Thank you, Luke, for your question, and you're, you're right to start digging into this, because the great thing about having so many choices in curriculum is that there's a lot to choose from, which is awesome. You have lot, lots of options, but that can also be what makes it so hard. So here are some things that I would suggest. You can certainly look online uh, to compare some homeschool curriculums. You can just search the term compare homeschool curriculum reviews, and you'll get a pretty good overview of what's available. But I always found in my experience when we were homeschooling that it was best to try out the curriculums. Like I really wanted to page through those and really dig into them to know if they were going to work for us. And that's hard because usually to get those curriculums, you have to buy them, right? So that costs money and brand new curriculums are not cheap. So here's what we did instead. We would check out used curriculum sales. So if you have local homeschooling groups or a homeschooling organization in your state, very often they will hold a convention or they will have workshops or something like that. And as part of that, there will usually be a used curriculum sale. So parents that are done with their curriculum will be there trying to sell it to a new homeschooling parents. And it's a great way to get a good deal on homeschooling curriculum, but it's also really awesome because you can go to all those tables and you can ask questions of the parent that used that curriculum. There's usually so much stuff there. It's incredible. But the great thing is you can actually page through the curriculum and really dig into it and see, is this going to work for my kids? Does this look interesting? Is this super, super dry? Is this super exciting? You know, how do I think this would work for my family? So that was actually the best thing that we ever did was being able to go and talk to those parents who had already used it, but also like be able to page through it. I would suggest if you're looking at homeschooling, I would ask other homeschoolers. I would join some local homeschool groups or even some online groups and start talking with other parents about what they're using, 
about what they thought about it, what they're thinking of using. And remember to take it with a grain of salt because every family is different. Every kid is different. And so different things work. And the great thing about homeschooling is you can pick and choose what you're going to use. So keep that in mind. But it's good to get other parents' experiences of what they've used. We actually got a lot of our stuff at garage sales or homeschoolers who are passing their stuff along because obviously you go through the curriculum and when you're done with it, you want to find a new home for it. So we were lucky enough to know homeschoolers who are a little bit ahead of us in the game. And so we generally would uh, get their the things that they were done with. So that was great. But another thing to keep in mind is that you can also write your own curriculum. If you head online and you look up scope and sequence or you look up a curriculum map, what you're going to find is kind of a list of generally what kids learn at what point in their educational experience. So, you know, what a first grader would normally learn, what a 10th grader would normally learn. And so if that's something that interests you, you can go in there and say, this is what they should probably be learning. And you can write your own curriculum based on what your kids are interested in, based on how they learn. This is something that you can look at if you're you're one of those parents who likes to be super hands-on and super, super involved in it and likes to do your own thing. But you really don't need to make a purchase for every single thing you want to teach your kids. You know, if you want to teach your kids for first aid and you know first aid, you don't necessarily need to buy a first aid curriculum to teach your kids first aid, right? I would say when it comes to evaluating your options and what's out there, I would say there's four things to keep in mind. The first thing is, are your kids interested in it? Because there are a lot of things that I brought home from a garage sale or a used curriculum sale that I thought was going to be really awesome. And my kids are like, what is this? This this is not even interesting to us. This is, this is not something that we are into. So I would either save it for when they were into it or we'd pass it along to someone else. So know your kids, know what they're interested in, know kind of what their vibe is. And obviously with your kids being younger, you don't exactly you know know what they'd be into yet. So you might have to go with what you think is interesting and what you think is going to work. And keep in mind, you know, as you go through your homeschooling journey, things are going to change. You might purchase something, you might figure something out and go, this is what we're going to do. And then you figure out, oh, now we got to change it. Now we got to change it. Now we got to change it. That's totally normal in homeschooling. So sometimes you just got to pick something, go with it, see how it works. And you may have to do that because your kids are so small. So the first things that you're investing in or finding may just be what you're interested in. But as you get older, obviously your kids are going to have some input in that. Number two, does it work with the way they learn? You know, there's so many options out there right now. You know, we're learning online. We're learning hands-on. We can write papers. We can do projects. Do you need something that is good for multi-age group learning or do you want individual learning? Do you want something that's based really heavy in books and reading? Are your kids really not into books? You have to know how your kids learn and keep that in mind when you're looking for a curriculum, which is great because there's so many options out there, but you have to know what your kids are into and how they learn. The third thing that's important to keep in mind is do you need independent learning? For some of your kids or all of your kids, depending on the ages, you might want those older kids to be able to do some independent stuff while you're working with the younger kids, or maybe you want the older kids to be able to teach the younger kids. So keep that in mind when you're looking at a curriculum. And I would say the fourth thing to keep in mind is how much work do you want to put into it? Because there are some curriculums where you can just let your kids go by themselves, and that's great. There are other curriculums that you need to be more hands-on, either because you want to be or because it's necessary to make the curriculum work. And keep in mind, some kids really like to work independent and some kids they're just not ready for that or it doesn't work well for them. Every kid is different. Everybody, Every kid is dealing with a different situation going on. So if anybody is interested about a few of the curriculums that we use, we didn't use a lot of curriculum. We were mostly unschoolers, but I will say that for world history, my kids did really enjoy a curriculum called Story of the World. For math, they enjoyed Life of Fred. Life of Fred is, is less of a drill and kill kind of thing. It's more of a storybook, like here's how this kid used math in his real life. 
A lot of people ask us what we use for reading. We just read. Once my kids learned to read, we just read. There are reading curriculums out there, but we just thought, you know what? We can. We learned how to read. Now let's just read. So that's what we did. So I hope this was helpful for you, Luke. Let me know if you guys have any more questions. Send them to Jack, and I will talk to you again soon. So when we decided to do this with my grandkids, I um, I, I think we we felt even more burden than a parent usually feels because they're our grandkids. So we were trying to make sure we did the right thing for them, and at the same time, we didn't want to let down my son or our daughter-in-law. So it was kind of a double level of pressure, and I would say that that is probably what many people are concerned with when they're evaluating these curriculums. And I I, I very much second what Amy said, like pick one. Like, like you can go through it, you can dig into it, you can figure, but in the end, pick something that you're going to do. Pick a way that you're going to execute this, and then do it, and don't stress. Like, if your kid's struggling with a subject, just drop that subject. Like, if you're doing four subjects, you know, a year, four core subjects, do three, get them done. You'll get them done before the school year would be up, and then take all that time and drill into the one that was being difficult. Like, be flexible. Um, don't put weight on yourself over this. Like my, my, my wife has to deal with this way more than I do because I'm working and she's out there with it. She's out there with the kids right now, you know, and you've got them two kids at two different ages at two different levels, pulling you back and forth. That's hard. I got a taste of that Friday cause she was gone and I had to do it for half a day. Um, and I have a new respect for it as well. Um, but she was worried yesterday cause like she was supposed to be learning and her teacher was talking on the distance learning and, You know, she was kind of spacing out and all. And I'm like, don't you remember school? Don't you remember school? How often did you space? Like half of school is figuring out how to space out and get away with it. You know how to slack off and get away with it. That's one of the one of the true skills that you actually learn in school. And the difference here is instead of a teacher looking at 22, 24, 32 kids, you're, you're a grandma looking at your granddaughter and your grandson and you know them intimately. And you know always when they're spacing out. And then you're going to stress over it. You know, if they're spacing out a little bit, let them get through it. See if they see if they took the material in. If they didn't, hit replay. Or if they're supposed to be reading a book and you don't think they're really paying attention and they, they don't seem to know the material, let them read it again. You know, it's simple. As for uh, a program, I really recommend, I know I sound like a bro broken record, I really recommend you look into Excellus. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out. Ask, hey, what is that thing that you recommend? I've, you know, I've given them the information. I haven't had anybody come back and say, you know, this really did, just want you to know it didn't really work out for us. Um, my friend David, who you're me talking about all the time, um, who's a friend I have, you know, we're, we spend time together in real life all the time. Like he's he only lives about 40 minutes away from me. Uh, he and his wife, their son is uh, he's difficult. When it, he's in high school level, and he's he's difficult to get to do his work, to pay attention, uh, things like that. And we had uh, lunch with him a couple weeks ago on our back porch here, and uh, his wife told me she, he is just digging into this. He's he's going to them. Did you know this? Did you know that? And it's like it changed my whole paradigm. I never like he's so engaged, and it's like apparently not a normal thing for him. And I think it's the method that they use. And it, the, the nice thing about it is it will give you a total package. But you still have the flexibility. So like I said, if, if our grandson struggles in something, we just put that on the shelf for a while. We're going to do the other three subjects. No one gets mad. Nobody gets upset. Nobody calls you. Nobody tells you you're doing it wrong. You just do the other three subjects. 
Or, like, we decided we wanted to keep him moving ahead of what would be his peers if he was in regular school. Because he, he finished last year, like, three months before the school year ended. And so he had some of it knocked out by the time summer officially started. And we wanted him to have a summer, but we also didn't want him out of the habit of learning. So what's your favorite subject? It's this. Okay, fine. Then you do that. You do one subject through the summer. And it kept him, like, the flexibility is unreal. And don't be afraid. I guess what I'm saying, don't be afraid to use the flexibility. And don't be afraid you're going to make a mistake. I, I, I almost need to have a t-shirt made with this for how burned in my brain it became. When Sue LaPreeze, Sue and Mike LaPreeze used to be our homeschool uh, uh, expert council members before they decided, hey, we're going to go travel the country and we need some time off. And, and that's when Amy stepped in. And when I was trying to make this decision, I wasn't sure about it. And I was talking to, to Mike and Sue. Sue said to me, listen, Jack, think back to when you were a kid. There's absolutely no way to make a child learn a thing they don't want to learn. And there's absolutely no way to prevent a child from learning something they do want to learn. And that was, for me, that was like taking the pressure valve off the pressure cooker and psh, it just released. Oh, we can open up and, and get on with life now. Uh, my thoughts on that one. Let's talk about finding rot, detecting rot, with somebody that knows a little bit about rot, Paul Wheaton. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. I'm here with Kyle, and today we're going to talk about how to detect a rotten post or log in a structure. So past visual inspection, like seeing, you know, cubic rot or... Oh, geez, if it's got cubic or, rot, it's... Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Something's wrong. Something was wrong before you put that post in there. Right. <laughs> Are you, have you seen cubic rot in any of the uh, stuff in our structures? Not in the structures, but like you'll start to see on the the bottoms and or some like dry rot thing going on so okay that's true and mostly I in think, the junk pole fences we we can see it which is outdoors mm. yeah i'm i'm thinking about an indoor thing i mean i kind of want to talk about like we go into the berm shed like mm -hmm. we just now replaced a post in the berm shed um but a couple of years ago we replaced a post in Allerton Abbey and i think a lot of people are going to be thinking like man that is going to be so impossible It's not impossible. It's just a little, little delicate. You have to jack up the right beams and, and let weight off of that one post and, you know, probably cut through some fasteners or whatever you have securing in there. Yeah. So we've got a whole bunch of house jacks. Uh. And it seems like whenever we're going to move a post or we're going to replace a post, we deploy about six house jacks to kind of hold everything in place in all kinds of different ways. Yep. And then um, <clears throat> once we seem to be holding up the roof, which will have tons of dirt on the top. Because yeah. some people talk about snow load, and it's like, oh, snow load comes in addition to the dirt load yes. on top of a berm shed the or the moisture fight. and what else. But house jacks have a lot of strength to them, so just you're just holding up the one post. They're plenty, plenty enough for uh, yeah for that weight. I think one house jack could probably hold the weight of whatever is one post, but we usually deploy six. Yeah, a lot. Just to be super duper safe. Yep. And then um, we get everything kind of jacked up about, I don't know, about an inch. Mm -hmm. And then we start kind of taking we, the old post you out. You only want to take it just, up just enough to let off the weight and not too much to deform, you know, other bits of the structure. So you just yes. want to just, just enough to slide it out and get a new one in. But now detecting, I use... My pocket knife, yeah. I, or my Leatherman. I get the stabby part out. Yeah, a little stabby thing. Um, <clears throat> uh, pocket knife, a screwdriver, and 
poke it. If yeah. it <laughs> That's if you it. can poke into it, something's not good. It should well, you know, it should be like poking a, a two by four. It should be Yeah. Hard yeah, wood if, and I, if I can stab it and it goes in a sixteenth of an inch and it's like after a hard stab, then it's like it's okay. that's solid wood. That's that's good wood. But if it goes in like a couple of inches, mm-hmm. then it's like, uh oh. Or sometimes you can knock on it and you know tell the difference between the sound of the <laughs> knock knock versus is it piff piff thud thud, <laughs> or is it sharp and you know yeah resonant. So the the big thing is is that um, it happens. I mean mm-hmm. you know you'll get a log or even a two by four and it'll be like man that looks that looks solid and then um, you'll get five years down the road and it's like man. Something's wonky with that. Maybe, you know, something got graded incorrectly and some water got close to it. Right. It, it can happen. Yeah. Right. We've had we've had all kinds of different things. Water, um, where water wasn't supposed to be, um, and, uh, yeah, you know, other other stuff. So the other thing we've done to try and lessen the moisture buildup uh, at the bottoms of our posts is put gravel in the holes and around the, the posts when we bury them. Yeah, it seems like in the last year, this is what we've been doing. We've switched from a variety of different techniques. Some people burn, like they char the ends of posts. I think that does help about 10%, but I don't think it's worth the effort. A little bit, you know. And, um, and some people do stuff with cement. I don't I don't like using cement or concrete well, cause for things. Well, because water can get between the cement and the wood and yeah. moisture can build up there, too, because water gets everywhere. I mean, so. either, it depends on the – there's two different kinds of cement. There's going to be the kind that's um, where – it's water permeable, and mm-hmm. then the kind that is not water permeable. Yep. And so if it's not water permeable, then that means that any moisture in the log is going to be trapped in the log. Right. And then if it is water permeable, that means that the cement will wick water to the log. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, concrete, it gets activated by water. So then uh, what we do is we uh, make the hole an extra foot deep, oh. and we throw some big-ass rocks down there, and then we throw some gravel on top of that, then we pack the post in there as tight as we can. And put gravel around it and pack the gravel around it until it's solid. Yeah. It's like you, you're taking the dirt out and burying it with the same amount of what would be concrete, just all gravel. So, yeah, rather than using any kind of toxic gick, it's just rocks and wood. Huh. That's it. And uh, if any water is, like, you know, trying to make a beeline for our post to make it rot... It hits the gravel and it can't make it to the post. Yeah. If there's any it water in the out. post, it it uh, it comes out and goes away. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. All right, I think that's, that's it. it. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Bye. Next up, let's hear from Nick Ferguson on how and when to harvest from your fodder trees. Hey everyone, Nick Ferguson here with an answer on awesome fodder trees again. I hope you guys are paying attention and getting these kinds of systems planted and producing as soon as you can because I really strongly feel like in the coming years they will enable you to enjoy a very nice return on your investment and pay well in the form of food freedom. Not to mention, if feed supply lines are disrupted in any major way, inflation, you get what I'm saying. Good stuff if times get tough or even if they don't, as someone we all know is fond of saying. So, let's get to the question of the day, shall we? And pardon my voice... I got allergies or something going on. So, uh, I believe this question should be for Nick Ferguson. What is the best time of the season to harvest fodder trees for feed? And what is the best method to preserve the hay harvest for winter use? He's in Minnesota, or he, she, 
is in Minnesota, Zone 4. I have white mulberry that I'm starting to pollard. I'm also propagating some willow from a neighbor's tree. I currently have chickens and will soon be adding rabbits. If you have any more fodder tree suggestions for my area, let me know. Thank you, Jody. All right, best time of the season to harvest for feeding your animals. Well, first, we need to break it down because really there's no best time. Uh, there are no best times uh, that we can specifically say because there are best times for high protein, which is early in the year, and there's best times for volume, which are mid to late summer, but I guess I can just give you the general answer first. On mature trees that are ready to handle full-time harvesting, you harvest a little bit every quarter, and you, you drive the leaves in the shade, you bundle them with twine, and store like you would hay. Basically, you just have these kind of arm-sized bundles or uh, however large of a bundle you need for your animals and for your storage space and how large you are, how easy it is for you to move the stuff around. Just pick what works best for you. <clears throat> Um, and you're gonna have, <coughs> you're gonna have a mixture of higher protein and lower protein in the leaves depending on what part of the year the harvest was taken. But don't sweat it. You're making hay. But instead of grass leaves, it's tree leaves. It's really just as simple as that. As for periodization on your harvesting, it really all comes down to what your trees can produce and recover from. Exactly like harvesting a pasture. If you go too hard, you'll reduce recovery and achieve a lower return on your harvesting. Think of a bell curve with the number of times you harvest and pounds of harvest. Uh, if you harvest too much, the pounds you can harvest goes down because the trees have to spend more energy recovering from the harvest. If you harvest too little, you'll naturally harvest very little. If you hit the right figures on recovery and harvest frequency or volume, then what you're going to do is spur the tree to produce as much as it can and thereby accomplish your goal, which is maximum yield. So we can take a quick, short-term yield by harvesting everything, but that's going to damage our returns later on. Make sense? I really wish there was a pat answer I could give you, but it's kind of like trying to teach someone how to have a grazer's eye. It's really a matter of experience and experimentation. So, because there's so many factors at play here, I can't just give you an answer on this. You really, you just have to play with it and see what works for your situation where you are. So, all I can do is basically just give you the principles and let you try it yourself. So, get 100 trees planted. Break them up into 10 lots of 10. Try different intervals of harvesting and harvest volumes as well as fertilization. And you should be able to figure out exactly what works for your trees and your climate with your soil and rainfall. But the main thing is to go easy and slow. Never take all the leaves off of a growing tree. I'd probably stick to somewhere around 50% of total leaf mass harvested at any given time. You're likely going to find at different times that you can increase that harvest volume or the flip side that you'll need to keep the percentage lower at certain times of the year. In the fall, I'd leave everything alone so the tree can stockpile as much sugars as possible for the winter. Remember, a large root system means a large production of leaves. The bigger the root system, the more shoots and leaves it can produce. Same thing applies to really most plants. I mean, even a lawn will do best if you're removing around 50 to 60% of the leaf mass at any one time. And then you harvest again once that growth recovers. So it all depends on your climate and how fast the trees grow 
for you where you live because different species grow at different rates. Uh, even those species grow at different rates depending on the temperature, how much sunlight they're getting, how much rainfall they're getting, fertility, so many factors. Basically, to make it real simple, I treat them like you would a lawn. You wouldn't cut your lawn to the dirt and then try to cut it again next week. Uh, you'd let the lawn get good and thick, then you cut about 50% off the top. And you allow that to fully recover and grow back to that original harvest height before you cut the lawn again. We're looking for the same type of management pattern with the tree crops, except the trees will grow feet instead of inches. And as far as some tree species suggestions, I really like all the, th- all three trees that I picked out years ago for a fodder package. But there's a couple more that would probably be good candidates for your area. Um, and my top three, honestly, are white mulberry, hybrid poplar, and hybrid willow. I picked those three. White mulberry has the best protein, the best digestibility, best palatability. Hybrid poplar grows stupid crazy fast, so it can help fill in that earlier uh, gap in your timeline. Hybrid willow is also very fast, quick to grow, quick to harvest. Again, nice palatability. Those both are kind of earlier and quicker. White mulberry kind of grows into its own and starts producing really well. But all three of those are great. You can add in some Chinese elm. That's almost parvifolia. White ash. That's Fraxinus americana. And then the white mulberry is Morris alba. Hybrid poplar is populus. It's probably going to be deltoides nigra cross of some kind. And hybrid willow is going to be some salix hybrid. So I hope that helps. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. So um, he, he said he had allergies. Sounds like he's got COVID, man. He's got the COVIDs. You know, when I had COVID, I did talk to him in a teleconference, and he wasn't wearing his mask, and neither was I. I may have transmitted the COVIDs across the Internet in our video conference and infected him. Who knows? Anyway, seriously, um, Good advice from Nick, and I think he's right. I think like certain things you can get advice, but then you just have to start doing them. You just have to start doing them. And the, the good news is you're not going to break it when it comes to this like harvesting. Like you might, like he said, try each one a little bit more, a little bit less. Uh, a group of trees, break them up, and then like when you notice like this one really grew back heavily, then then what you did worked really well. And I think, but having like, you know, 10 groups, groups of 10, like if it's three groups, four groups, whatever it is, but groups of at least 10, that will let it aggregate out so you don't have like this one super tree and you didn't realize it. Uh, so you really know what you're dealing with. And I would say another, my little add-on tip to that is when you prune them, take a picture of what they looked like before you prune them and after you prune them and catalog those pr- uh, pictures like group one, group two, group three, group four, something like that. And then when you get ready for your next harvest, look at them and, comp- and take a picture of them. And compare that picture to when you harvest, and keep doing that for a while, because you won't remember. You won't remember exactly what you did last time. And that will make it, you know, it's, it's a visual operation. It's something that you're going to, and what you'll, you'll end up doing eventually is you'll, you'll be like, you know what? Those four trees, even though I'm not going to be technically harvesting for another two weeks, I should probably harvest those trees. You'll get that, like like Nick called it, a grazer's eye, except you're the grazer 
and it's you're grazing trees with mechanical means. All right, with that, let's go. And I, oh, by the way, I agree with Nick. Like, especially if, you know, rabbits or goats or anything like that. Like the self sufficiency that this gives you. And this was very, very, very common not that long ago. Uh, it was referred to as tree hay. And if you watch things like uh, the the BBC stuff, like Tales from the Green Valley, Wartime Farm, etc., you learn a lot about this and how much people relied about relied on it for thousands of years and right up until just a few decades ago, honestly. In, in, in the human timeline, it, we, we've been in a world where you could not use things like this for a very short period of time. All right, with that, let's go ahead and um, talk to you about the quote of the day today. I wanted to, to bring this up, and I wanted to tell you why I picked it and how it, how it links back to my Miyagi morning from Monday. So on Monday, I was asked on MeWe, to talk about how you think after you get out of the military. And and not so much like dealing with PTSD or whatever, just dealing with reentry and how it continues to affect the way you talk, the way you act, the way you react to certain things, the way you treat other people. And I did the best I could with it, and I I feel like I hit kind of a home run with that, but I, I don't feel that it was without cost to me. I've gotten to a place in my life, it's been 28 years since I got out of the military. Um, I've been alive longer since I got out of the military than I was before I went in the military, right? And I'm in a pretty good place. And I have not been myself this week since I did that. It it hit me. And this quote kind of zeroes in on the why. I didn't go through a bunch of battles. I didn't see a bunch of dead people, you know. Um, I don't have like something I did back then that I really, really regret and wish I had never gone and done. I, I was a mechanic. I got to jump out of airplanes. I got to do some really cool things. And a lot of my life is better because I, I took those three years and did that. Um, my life was kind of on a track as a teenager where had I not done that, my life may not be so good today. I don't know. There's no way to know. I, You know, in the quantum universe, you... You, you make a decision, and at that point, you fractal into the, the universe you're in, and, and you did make that decision in another one, but it's, it, it doesn't exist for you. And there's no way to go back. And that's a lot of what this quote's about as well. But what it, what it conjured up in me, and it took me a couple days to process why I felt, I, felt, um, I felt like I ran a marathon. I felt emotionally drained at the end of that. And I wasn't myself this week, and I, I was it was not as good in my relationships with my wife and my grandkids. And, you know, dealing with things going wrong and stuff, because shit goes wrong every day. And it was because it's not the three years. It's the 28 years that came after it. And all of the places in that 28-year period that if you could go back to that spot, you would have done things differently. You would have spoken differently to somebody. You would have handled things differently with somebody. And then realizing, oh, that fractal and that quantum where I made that decision, that actually goes you know, 14 years back to when I was in the military and the way my mind was trained to think. But that would be true for anybody. It just That's where I'm coming from. You might be coming from some other place. And then think about this quote. I gave my life to become the person I am right now. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it worth, you know, if you're 50 years old, you gave 50 years of your life. People talk about, like, they go to work for a company. I gave them 20 years of my life. No, you gave 20 years of your life to you, to become who you are. And if, if you're 50, you gave 50 years of life. 
and what you have and who you are and what you've done and everything about you and everything in your world at this point, everything you touch and have touched and how it affects you and it affects other people. Every tree you planted or you didn't plant is part of who you are, both in the real world and metaphorically. Every time you were good to somebody, every time you were bad to somebody, every time you made a good decision for yourself, every time you made a bad decision for yourself. Every time you ate food you shouldn't have and damaged your body, even if you've recovered from it, like there's some damage. Or abuse of substances, that's part of how you became who and what you are today. You gave your life to become the person you are right now. Was it worth it? And I think sometimes we look back and think, yeah, but it could have been much better. I think anybody honest would, would answer the question that way, even if you feel like it was worth it to become who I am. And, and I do feel that way. I often say when people say, well, if you could go back and change these things, would you? And I, I think about it and I go, you know, just as a for instance, when I got out of the Army, I took some time back in Pennsylvania. Before I even took my walk down the Appalachian Trail, I took that time kind of with my friends and, and my family, and nothing good came from it. Nothing horrible came from it, but nothing good came from it. It was about a month of... I mean, I guess maybe what came from it is I need to take a walk on the Appalachian Trail. But I think to myself, what if I, what if I had not wasted that time? What if I had immediately taken that walk or immediately come to Texas and got ahead in my life? And I think, well, then, what is it, 24 years ago, I wouldn't have been at Cowboys in Arlington on that particular night, maybe I would have been somewhere else, maybe somewhere good, maybe somewhere better as far as a better place to to be, but not a better place to have been. Because that was the night that I met my wife. And if I had just not been there, if her sister had just not harassed her until she's like, fine, I'll come out. I have no son. Not the son I have, anyway. No granddaughter. No grandson, no Nine Mile Farm, maybe no Survival Podcast. The person I've become is Jack Spierko, host of the Survival Podcast. Jack Spierko, grandfather. Jack Spierko, father. Jack Spierko, husband. Jack Spierko, dog owner. Jack Spierko, permaculturist. I am very happy that I've become the person I've become. It doesn't mean that I don't look back and go, boy, that was a mistake. It was worth it. But a lot of times when something's worth it, there's a lot of struggle and pain to get there. The good news for everybody, no matter how you answer that question, is if you can fog a mirror, you're not done yet. You're not finished. You still have more to do. There is still some of your dash left. No matter how much you feel you've fallen short, of who you wished you had become, it doesn't matter. Who you are and who you will be is still under your control. If you wish I had done something differently, is there any way to do now whatever that would have given you? Then do it. If there isn't, then accept it. And just... Sometimes stop and think of all the good in your life and realize that even what might have been a better decision at the time for that moment may have fractalized your life 
and to one of those other quantum universes and all those things that you value so much now might not be there. I have to say that I think unless you're rotting in a prison cell for the rest of your life or something like that, whoever you gave your life to become probably was worth it. Because we should not live the way so many humans do, living in the past. One of my favorite things in the world is petting my dog or, frankly, anybody's dog. I'm petting my dog with my foot right now. He's a good boy. I love dogs. And I love dogs because of how they, how they relate to humans, how once they bond with us, they give 100%. They're always there. They're always loyal. They're always devoted. But do you know how they can do that? How that's even possible? How you can take a dog in, like, like our Lucy, that was abused and on the streets and terrified and you couldn't touch her. If, without, if you touched her, she peed. She cowered. She shook. And in less than a week, she wasn't perfect, but we had a pretty damn good dog that would, that would climb up on you and, and cuddle with you. They don't live in the past. They live in the now. And I think it's because in some ways, they're smarter than we are. There is no past. There is no future. All there is is now. And now becomes more now across what we define as time because we don't have a better word for it or a better concept to explain it with as mortal beings. Now is what matters. Now is what matters. Tomorrow doesn't matter. Tomorrow doesn't matter because it hasn't occurred yet. Now and what we do now will determine tomorrow. And yesterday doesn't matter other than the lessons we have to use now from it. There's no rewinding. There's no you know, select new game and start over. You're not going to go back to high school and ask the girl out that you never got the guts to ask out in the first place. You're not going to go try out for the team that you never tried out for. You're not going to put that one little bit of extra effort in trying out for that thing that you would have made it. You could have done it, but you just didn't because you just felt tired that day and you, you didn't give it that one more percent. You're not going to go back and get the job that you could have got. You're not going to go back and turn down the job that you took. You're not going to go back and unsay the unkind words that you said 20 years ago to somebody. You're not going to do any of it. You can't. I look at life a lot like, believe it or not, a video game. In some ways, it's like a video game or a movie. And when we enter it, we agree to these rules. We agree to these rules. Just like the character in a video game. You, When you play that game, that character has limitations. And they can't go outside those limitations. And that's, that's one of ours. We don't get to rewind. We don't get to do over. But we get to do now. As I look at that, I think, I did give... My entire life so far, 49 years, to become the person I am right now. Yes, it was worth it. In spite of all the mistakes, in spite of everything I've ever done wrong, it was worth it, and it was mostly worth it because I'm not done yet. I think that's something maybe, maybe some segment of this audience needs to hear. Yes, it was worth it because you're not done yet. Finish strong. And if you have 30 years left to finish... Finish strong. If you have 60 years left to finish, finish strong. If you have five, finish strong. If you have five months, finish strong. 
It's the only thing that you control. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you again, workshop on sale September 25th. Don't tell me your dog ate it or whatever. I, I, I keep saying it so that no one can say they didn't know. Uh, it'll go out in the, in the daily mail today, tomorrow, all week up until it happens, and then it's done. Uh, next up, if you want to support the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping through what? tspaz.com. Come on, guys. T say it with me. Just say it in your head right now if you're somewhere where people are going to think you're crazy if they hear you saying you know, weird things like tspaz. Right? Just say it in your head. tspaz.com. I will shop at tspaz. I'm brainwashing you. Of course you want to shop at tspaz. You help support me. You don't spend any money you wouldn't have spent anyway. So why not do it? Anyway, other than that, I also put up my items of the day for review for you. They're all things I own, I use. I'll buy again. If I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't recommend it. That's kind of my brand. Uh, being trustworthy. And picking the right stuff. Today, I have a nutritional product for you. I am not a doctor, and this is not a nutritional or health advice of any kind, because the .gov will throw me into ClubFed if I do that. No matter how much I know about health and nutrition, I'm not allowed to give it to you as advice medically for your life. I'll just say that what I'm going to tell you is things that doctors have told me. <laughs> Uh, Solray Zinc and Copper Amino Acid Chelates is the zinc product that I take for my health. And I now will take zinc for the rest of my life after what I learned about zinc. I always knew it was an important element. But what I learned about zinc in my research for how to mitigate and, and, and hopefully prevent or at least, you know, again, mitigate COVID was that zinc, as valuable as it is, does the most for us when we get it inside the human cell. So we first want an absorbable form, and chelated is a good way to go. Uh, and then we want to get it inside the cell wall. That's still hard. And so you use something like quercetin, which is a natural ionophore that gets it inside your cells. So that's easy to do. Quercetin is inexpensive and over-the-counter. I have a brand I, I recommend that. And the Soul Raising Copper is available uh, as well over-the-counter. It's inexpensive. You take it every day, and you get the zinc in the cells. It is science. It is not my recommendation. I'm not making health claims. It is science that when you get zinc inside the human cell, it disrupts the replication of mRNA replicating viruses, which many viruses are, including the COVID virus. Uh, so that's a good thing. But it also disrupts the replication of cancer cells. This is also known science. So when I saw that, I'm like, okay, zinc... And some ionophore for the re whether it's green tea extract or quercetin or whatever, forever, zinc forever. And then doctors wrote in and said, "Dude, you 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 got to tell people something else." And I'm like, "Well, what pray tell do I have to tell them?" He's they're like, "You got to tell them that if they're supplementing zinc regularly, they need to supplement copper because copper and zinc compete in your gut for absorption, and you can create a copper deficiency by getting lots of zinc without extra copper." So uh, this was the only really high-quality zinc product I could find that came with the right ratio of copper that every doctor that wrote in told me about. So, again, it's a, it's a product called Solray, Solray, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y, Solray, and uh, it's a copper zinc, and it's a chelated uh, zinc, which just means that it is easier for your body to absorb than some other you know cheaper forms of zinc, even though this stuff's really, really cheap. And to me, the thing that I'll take forever is going to be the zinc, some form of ionophore, and uh, the mushroom extract that we, that we recommend too, the, the Sacred 7. Like, I think those are things that you can do that are very inexpensive. They have other health benefits, and they may, they may help 
with your body's ability to resist certain cancers. Maybe. Because I can't say they will, even though science says that they might. Okay? Got it? All right. With that, remember, you can always support us no matter what you buy. If you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, and you can become a member of the MSB, the Member Support Brigade will get you discounts on tons of stuff. You use the discounts, and you get your money back every year, 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode is what that works out to. Please consider becoming a member today if you have not already done so. And now it is time for our song of the day. Now, this is, this is harder than I thought it was going to be, uh, and I didn't really do it to be that way. Um, I'm doing my uh, Pandora thing where I am each week picking a Pandora station and then I'm randomly selecting songs from that station and all I'm doing is hitting forward, 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 forward until I like, yeah, I want to hear that song today on, on the air. And then the only real exclusionary criteria is if, and this would be an example, it's not who the, uh, let's say I made a, um, a, a channel on Bob Seger, and if a Bob Seger song came up, I have to skip that one because that's too obvious. So this channel, I'm going to give you a clue today too because this is the way this came out. This is hard. This this channel is based on an individual, not a group. This channel is based on a country artist is how this artist is mostly thought of. And two of the songs in this week's group are definitely country songs. And two of them are not, including today's. Today's is Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. So here's how it works. You try to figure out, I don't have any formal contest or anything, you just do it in your head. Try to figure out who this channel is based on. Here's the four songs this week. Monday we had I Wish Grandpa's Never Died by Riley Green. And I would say of all the songs this week, the one most closely related to this artist would be that one. That one will not surprise anybody when you hear the artist. Then Tuesday, Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival. And then, this is helpful, Really Great Harmonies yesterday from Diamond Rio with Meat in the Middle. And today, Doc of the Bay, really soulful. So who do you think the channel is based on Monday? Because Friday we'll have the uh, Miyagi Mornings episode. On, on Monday, I'll start a new week of this. And on Monday, I'll tell you who the artist is. And then I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to clone my Pandora channel. Because it's a really cool way you can do that. You, if you use Pandora right now, if you have a channel you really like, you can go in and get a link and send it to your friend. And when they accept that link, they get your channel with all the training you've done to it. If you're not familiar how Pandora works, you thumb up and thumb down music. So over time, you build a station based on a, 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 like 80s rock or an individual or a specific song that you train to be what you want it to be. All right, with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in Then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time 
I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay I've had nothing to live for And look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on a darker bay, wasting time. Look like nothing's gonna change. Everything still remains the same. I can't do what ten people tell me to do. So I guess I'll remain the same. Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone This two thousand miles I roam Just to make this dock my home Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of a bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on a darker bay, wasting time.